0: Well, uh, greetings again, everybody, if you've forgotten my name, it's Steve, and uh, it's great to see you today. I'm also welcoming our friends in Whitehall, and uh, we had our Whitehall worship team leading us in worship today, which was very exciting, so thank you for that. I'm uh, really glad to be back after my uh, study break, which is now completed, and this is a year I really needed it probably more so than in years past. And uh, it was great. I continue to be thankful to our elders for giving me that privilege every summer. And uh, my tanks are filled back up. It was very replenishing and renewing. And uh, I am glad to be back and ready to go. Uh, This last Christmas, um, in addition to getting gifts for other people, my family members I got a gift for myself anybody else ever do that I gifted something for myself I went out and got myself one of these That is a drone and uh it's a mini drone I guess and uh hadn 't flown it for a while, went out this afternoon and flew it, lost control of it, went soaring over the, the church building and anyway it 's back and i, I 'm just intrigued by drones, are you and And I know that they can be used for all kinds of uh, nefarious purposes. <laughs> I you know we heard the news a couple of weeks ago somebody had somehow attached an explosive to a drone and blew it up, and all that kind of thing but there's some good uses too, and I especially like to see aerial footage, aerial drone footage from high, high, high up above looking down on the landscape from that vantage point and I guess I like it because you can just see the bigger picture from way up high, right? It just gives you the broader panoramic landscape and and you can see what's going on from a different vantage point, kind of from from an elevated vantage point and it gives you a whole new appreciation for what's going on down below. I'm going to use that as my metaphor today for what I'm hoping the Lord will do for us, because typically this is a month, August, where we set aside some time to talk about the church, the church of Jesus Christ. And that means not the building that we're in, but of course it's the people, right? Because the church is the people, the people of God. And so We're going to do that, and what I want to do first today is take us way up high to the view from the drone's eye view, I guess you could call it, from 30,000 feet. Now, I was tempted to start this thing up, pull my little thing out, and send it out, but I, I thought I might end up trimming somebody's beard or giving somebody a haircut or something going terribly wrong, so I decided not to do that, but... We're going to go way up high today and look down at the the broader panorama and picture of the church from 30,000 feet to get the higher perspective, and I think we're we're going to see that that's a breathtaking view from up there, and hopefully we'll all get a new appreciation for this thing, this amazing, sometimes mystifying Sometimes wonderful, sometimes hurtful, this very interesting thing that we get to be a part of called the church. To help us get that view, I am going to do something a bit unusual, and it's something I felt the Lord prompting me to do as I was preparing this week. I'm going to read for us the entire first three chapters of Ephesians plus the first six verses of the fourth chapter of Ephesians, which will take approximately 12 minutes. I know because I timed it many, many times this week while I was arguing with the Lord about this. Like, you really want me to read this huge chunk of Scripture to God's people this weekend? And you know what happens when you argue with the Lord. It just doesn't, you know, go real well and... And uh, it was clear to me that he was saying, this is my word, and I want my people to hear my word. As I read through it, how about this? Whenever you hear something in Ephesians 1 through 3 that blesses you, or that you agree with, or that reminds you of who you are in Christ, your position in Christ, would you just blurt out, amen? Let's practice, okay? One, two, three. Amen. Actually, the Bible says to do that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. It's okay to say amen in church. And who knows? The preacher might preach better if you do that. So, as you, as you hear those kinds of things, just say amen. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul? <laughs> All right. Someone here in Gehanna just said amen after that first word, is why I'm laughing. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Who's that? Jesus, that's right. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood... The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us along with all wisdom and understanding and He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. Here's the mystery of His will. To bring all things in heaven and on the earth together under one head even Christ. In him we were also chosen, or we were made heirs, probably a better translation, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ, that's probably the Jews, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also, probably the Gentiles, You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart, you have eyes in your heart, did you know that? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, Not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him, this is Jesus, to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's chapter 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You remember? In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That's why we need good news. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope And without God in the world. And I would add, when you are without God, you are without hope in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, Gentiles, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, Jew and Gentile. Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far away, Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, Jews, for through him we both now have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you, Gentiles, are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief, cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's chapter two. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, dot, 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 rabbit trail coming surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you that is the mystery made known to me for you by revelation as I've already written briefly in reading this then you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to men in other generations as as it has now been revealed by the spirit of God's or to God's holy apostles and prophets The mystery is this, that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise that is in Christ Jesus. And I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power, although I am less than the least of all God's people. Why did he say that? I think because he was a killer of Christians. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration or the outworking of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden by God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That's interesting. According to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth. Grandma and grandpa, Moses, Elijah. Heaven and on earth derives its name. Second prayer. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, literally settle down on the couch and feel at home in your life. Do you want Jesus to feel at home in your life? Through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, to know this unknowable love, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more or exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. That's chapter three. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live, let me say that again, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep or preserve or protect the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. I want to make a few observations that arise out of what we just read. First, we're all caught up in a larger story. Did you know that? There's a drama that's being played out and whether people realize it or not, they're in it, we're in it. There's a larger story that's unfolding and there are dimensions of that story that aren't in the physical realm and thus they're not visible to the naked eye. They can only be perceived with what? The eyes of the heart when they are enlightened as he prayed for. Paul is telling us there's more going on all around us than meets the eye. Things are not always what they seem to be. Reality is broader and has more uh, more dimensions than can be apprehended by just our five physical senses. In that passage, he spoke of cosmic decisions that were made before the world was even created. He talked about Christians who were living down here on the earth but somehow simultaneously seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. He talked about God making his wisdom known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. He talked about a spirit that he called the ruler of the kingdom of the air who holds sway over people and seeks to influence them to follow his ways. What does all this tell us? It tells us there's an invisible realm of existence that is every much as real as the visible realm that's all around us every day. It might even be more real. So the truth is, there's more going on than meets the eye. Do we get this? In this unfolding drama, we humans, I hate to break it to you, we are not the main attraction. We're not the star of the show. We're actually minor characters in this story, and that's kind of humbling, isn't it? Because we all think we're pretty hot stuff. But don't let that fact dishearten you. Although somebody else is the hero, you are not insignificant. I am not insignificant. You matter. We read Ephesians, and it's very evident that we matter. Our lives matter to the overall storyline. We have an important role in the ultimate outcome of the story, and we're going to come back to that. This larger story that we find ourselves in contains all of the 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 same elements that we find in all of the fairy tales and all the stories that we human beings love and we tell our children. There's a clash between good and evil. There's an evil villain. There's tension and drama and innumerable plot twists. And there is a conquering hero. A rescuing hero who comes to save his people and deliver them from the clutches of the evil one. Some people believe that all the stories that we love and tell as human beings find their genesis in this larger story, and I'm one of those. So I mentioned a conquering hero, right? So that leads me to my second observation, number two. The hero of God's big story has already been determined. So I'm sorry, the starring role is not open for auditions. Selection's already been made. It was predetermined from the start. Ephesians tells us that before the world was even created, it was decided that it would be the beloved son. The beloved son of God the Father who would emerge as the great hero prince of the grand story. How many times did it say, did you hear me read, that God aims to ultimately make Jesus the head, the ruler over everything, his will is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. He appointed him to be the head over everything. It says it again and again and again. The hero is Jesus. And if you're a person sitting here tonight who has not yet accepted this, that everything revolves around the sun I hope you will. I hope you'll come to accept that soon because things in Things in your mind and things in your life will fall into place. You'll find them falling into place more and more once you come to the point of acknowledging that it's all not really about you. It's about somebody else. It's about Jesus. He is the one who rightly deserves all the honor, all the praise, all the worship, and all the devotion of your life and mine because of who he is, because of what he's done, by virtue of the fact that his father loves him dearly. It's called the beloved one over and over again. It's Jesus whose ultimate lordship and supremacy is the goal of the grand story. To him be glory in the church throughout all generations forever and ever, it's that. The gloriousness of Jesus' reign over all things, I would contend, is already being put on display in this world. At least in some measure, <clears throat> through this collection of people that the conquering hero has won to himself and won to his heart, the, the redeemed people of God whom we know as the church. He is already putting... His glory on display in this world that's my third observation the author of the story aims to make much of the hero the author the one who's writing the story aims to make much of the hero through the creation of and the activity of his church you matter I matter As Paul said in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold, the kaleidoscopic wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, that's spirit beings, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, those people that the hero rescued from the villain's domain, are being formed together into a brand new entity, the people of God, the church. In Ephesians, that new thing is represented by several metaphors. We heard them, right? We're called a temple for God to dwell in, chapter 2, verse 21. A household or a family for God to dwell with, chapter 2, verse 19 a body for God to express himself, express his life through. That's chapter 3, verse 6. Later on in the same book, chapter 5, we're also called the bride of Christ. So, So the church is the temple of God. We're the family of God. We're the body of Christ. We're Jesus' bride. And and to me, this is so interesting. In Ephesians, we're told that one of the main ways that God aims to make much of Jesus his son through the church is by bringing together a bunch of people who are very different, very diverse, and uniting them together under one head, Jesus. Most of what we read talked about God uniting who? Jews and Gentiles, right? Right? together into one body, the body of Christ. What do we know about Jews and Gentiles? Well, we know they were very different. We know they didn't like each other. We know they both felt superior to the other group. They were different ethnically, racially, culturally, religiously. Truthfully, they pretty much despised each other. Jews and Gentiles did. But through the finished completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross and through his empty tomb, it says God tore down that dividing wall that was between them, melted away their hostility and reconciled these two groups who were sworn enemies, brought them together with a shared allegiance and a deep common love for their rescuer, Jesus. Do you think there's any relevant truth for us today in our current culture? where racism runs rampant, where different groups hate each other. In that sense, I think it's really true that the church is the hope of the world when it's working right. Now, this this unity, this oneness in Christ, listen, doesn't erase cultural distinctions. It doesn't erase ethnic distinctions, but it does eclipse them. It eclipses them by establishing a higher and more profound identity for God's people that transcends all other differences. It's the basis of our unity, right? You could call it primary identity. So believers in Jesus who get this would say this, I'm a Christian first and everything else second. Right? I'm a Christian first and everything else comes after that. I have a primary identity in Christ. I'm mainly a lover of Jesus who just happens to be white or African-American or Latino or Asian or African. My primary identity has been bestowed upon me by God through my faith in Jesus' sacrifice for me. God has made me one of His. I belong to Him and that is my primary identity. I'm a Christian first. I'm a lover of Jesus first. For me, I've come to believe that my other identities white, American, heterosexual, male, husband, father, pastor, Cubs fan are all secondary. They're real. They're real. They they still say something true about me, but those labels are not the truest truth about me. Does that make sense? They aren't what defines me most deeply. The truest truth about me is that I'm in Christ. I'm a Christian. I'm a lover of Jesus. First and foremost, I'm a Christ follower. Now race is a huge issue, right? Right? And when it comes to this this issue, it's it's tearing people apart. That's why we need the church to be what the church was designed to be. We need to realize that as Christians, we've been adopted into one family, but it's a family that's multicolored, multi-hued, multilingual, multi-ethnic. All those identities still matter. We don't lose those things. They just aren't the truest truth about us. You may be pasty white like me, you need to realize you're first and foremost a Jesus follower, and your ethnic, cultural background is secondary. You may be like some of our darker-skinned brothers and sisters whom, whom I love dearly. But first and foremost, you are followers of Christ. That's our primary identity. We're Jesus' people. That's what defines us. And when Jesus' church actually does act in accordance with his intended design, the unity that results does what? It puts God's reconciling power on display for any eyes that are watching. Human eyes, and Paul said other eyes. Chapter 3, verse 10. I can just hear some spirit being who sees this remarkable unity that Christ has achieved in the body of Christ. I, I can, in the midst of this fragmented world, right, I can just see a spirit being mumbling to himself, huh, huh, well, how about that there in the church? Jesus can do that for those humans who are prone to divide over anything and everything? Who would have thunk? Jesus must be awesome. You see, the church is charged with showcasing showcasing the greatness of our hero. To a watching universe, human beings, spirit beings, whatever else out there might be watching. And so that really raises the stakes, doesn't it? It raises the stakes in how we choose to relate to people who are different than us. See, it's not just about the quality of our relationship with them or my relationship with you. There's more at stake here. Big things are are at stake. It matters maybe more than we thought. Which leads me to my final observation, number four. Each of us has a critical role. Say critical role. Critical role. You have a critical role. I have a critical role in maintaining the health of this church that Jesus created. For some reason, known only to God, he wrote into the plot line the ability for even minor characters, extras, (laughs) to be significant and to impact the outworking and the outcome of the grand story. Now, I didn't say we changed the outcome, but it sure seems to me from reading Ephesians that our attitudes and our actions have an impact. We make a difference. If that wasn't true, why would there be a chapter 4? Why didn't he just end with chapter 3 and verse 21? Now unto him, you know, all of that, period. So long, Paul. No, there's chapter 4. What follows is this call to gospel-grounded unity in the church. Verse 1 of chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Everything that he said in the first three chapters, this lofty, high, elevated calling. Verse two, with all humility, gentleness, with patience. How many need to hear that? Patience. Bearing with one another in love because you love them because they're your brother, because they're your sister. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then all these ones, there's one body, one Spirit, called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Does it seem like God is into oneness? <laughs> one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. So, so now the drone, which was way up there, 30,000 feet has now come down and it's hovering right above your head. And it's bringing your individual life and my individual life into clear focus on the screen, right? has something to say to us. And what is he saying? You matter. Yes, there's this big grand story that's unfolding all through the universe, but you matter and I matter. How you live your life matters. By your attitudes and your actions as an individual member of this body of Christ, of this church, you either contribute to or detract from the overall goal of the grand story, which is the glory of Jesus magnified in and through his church. So we either present a clear picture to people and spirit beings of what our hero is like, of his character, his integrity, his majesty, his honor, his purity, his power. We either present a a clear picture to those who are watching, or we present a garbled, distorted picture by the decisions and choices we make each and every day. You feel the weight of that? Listen, how we interact with people, how we relate to others every day has earthly impact and cosmic ramifications. Probably more than we realize. So if I go around all puffed up, feeling awesome, thinking I'm superior to you, if I go around looking down on you, having a condescending attitude towards you, or if I dismiss you as irrelevant, or push you out to the margins, or if I fail to just care about you due to your race, your ethnicity, your education, your job, your social status, your net worth, your political affiliation. Let me ask you this question. Are you a Christian who happens to be a Democrat? Are you a Christian who happens to be a Republican? or are you a Republican who happens to be a Christian? Which is it? Which is your primary identity? Are you a Christian who happens to be a member of the Green Party or Independent or whatever? What is your primary identity? How do you see yourself? If I look down on you because of your political affiliation or your appearance, the way you dress, or the car you drive, or which side of town you live on, or just because our respective social groups don't get along and and don't like each other, if I relate to you that way, I am in effect negating the sacrificial work of Christ, which he intended to transcend all of those differences and bring us together in one body under one head. He's into oneness big time. He aims to tear down those walls and unite us My proud, superior attitude dishonors Him and works against the goal of God's big story. But if I choose to embrace the mindset that comes from going way up high, from having that higher perspective, if I define myself and you by our shared primary identity in Christ, realizing we both have one Father one true and better older brother, one spirit who unites us, one baptism into Christ, one faith once for all delivered to the saints, one spirit who indwells us and is working to transform both of us, then I will look past our other differences. I'll look past our other differences and I will treat you with honor and respect and I will seek to serve you and meet your needs in Jesus' name. And when relationships look like that, Jesus will be seen as the great reconciler of humanity. And people outside the family of God might just be drawn in, amen? And spirit beings who are looking on are going to be blown away by the reconciling power of Jesus, and God will smile on his church for exalting his Son. These challenges presented here in the first few verses of Ephesians 4 are pretty simple, but they're not very easy. There's four of them. Walk worthy of your calling. Not like we're trying to be someone we're not. We're just simply trying to live up to who God has made us to be. Walk in humility and gentleness. Walk in patience and forbearance and walk in unity and peace. You ever been in a community where those were the prevailing attitudes? That's good. It's beautiful. That's something lost people want to be a part of, for sure. Listen, this is not some kind of forced uniformity that's legislated where everybody looks the same and acts the same and dresses the same and talks the same and uses the same lingo. That's not what we're talking about. This is a deep, internal spiritual community where we love each other because we know that we share the deepest things in common and we actually celebrate the differences we love one another deeply from the heart and you know what we can't create this oneness we can't muster it up only god can create it and he did But Paul says our calling is to make every effort to go the extra mile to preserve this and protect it. And we each have a part in Jesus' church being united and healthy and glorifying to him. And When we get this right, then that's the church that's going to bring Jesus the maximum amount of glory. That's the church that's going to be a healthy body. That's the church that that God's going to feel at home in. That's the church that's going to feel like family. That's the church that will confound and confuse the demons of hell. That's the church that will put God's power on display. That's the church that broken and confused and hurting people will want to be a part of. And those who are wounded and marginalized will find a place of belonging and refuge in a church like that. Where there's humility and gentleness and forbearance and peace. That's the church that will truly be living out the implications of the gospel, of the good news. Amen? That's the church that will bring a smile to the face of God. And so I finish with Paul's great doxology that he penned at the end of chapter three. Now, unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to that power that is at work within us, yes, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.